You stand on the shore of the ocean watching the tide come in. You sense the call of the sea beckoning to take you further. You step forward little by little, not knowing what to expect, but expecting more. You keep going as the ocean calls, calls you to enter in to deeper waters. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Deeper Waters podcast again. I am Nick Peters, your host, speaking to bring you the very best Christian scholarship in apologetics. And today we're talking about a topic we've covered a few times on here before, but it's always one that's important to talk about. And I think it's just kind of picture this situation. You're sitting at home with your spouse. You have nothing to do that day. Maybe it's a Saturday afternoon, let's say. And you decide you're going to turn on some Netflix, watch some shows together, and all of a sudden, there's a knock at the door. You're not expecting company, but you go and you look out and there are these two guys dressed very nicely, white shirts, black pants, <laughs> they have name tags, say, Elder So-and-So of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. These are Mormons. You've heard about them, but what do you know about them? Are they Christians just like us? Are they just another denomination? Are they really a cult, like some people say? What do they believe? Why does it matter? Well, to discuss this, I have a, having on here Eric Johnson from the Mormon Research Ministry, Mormonism Research Ministry. He uh, has been a student of Mormonism since 1987 when he served with Youth for Mission at Summer Utah Outreach. He graduated from San Diego State University, 1985, B.A. in Journalism, as well as at Bethel Seminary, San Diego, 91, Masters of Divinity. He co-hosts a daily radio program, Viewpoint on Mormonism, and writes for MRM's Mormonism Research Newsletter. <laughs> he is the co-author of Answering Mormons' Questions, Ready Responses for Inquiring Latter-day Saints, Mormonism 101, Examining the Religion of Latter-day Saints, Mormonism 101 for Teens, as well as serving as a co-editor of Sharing the Good News with Mormons. Eric served as an associate editor for the Project Study Bible for Students. And is a regular contributor to the Christian Research Journal. Eric taught high school Bible classes for 17 years at Christian High School and eight years as an adjunct professor at Grassmont College. In addition, he instructed classes at Bethel Seminary, San Diego. Eric is married to Terry. Together, they have three daughters, Carissa, Janelle, and Hannah, and live in the Salt Lake City area. So, um, Eric, welcome to the Deeper Waters podcast. Thanks for having me, Nick. And this, is, this is your first time on, so tell us a little bit about yourself in case my audience doesn't know much about who you are. How did you get to be doing what you're doing? Well, I uh, actually met my friend Bill McKeever, the founder of Mormonism Research Ministry, in 1989, 10 years after he had founded the ministry. And uh, I had become interested in Mormonism in the early 1980s and actually became interested in other religions based on what took place in 1978. A man named Jim Jones instructed a thousand people to commit suicide by drinking mm -hmm. Kool-Aid laced with, laced with cyanide. And uh, I was amazed that people would do that in the name of religion. So I started as a high school student back then to research and look at what other religions had to offer. How was it different from what I believed? Because I grew up in a Christian church, but that 
took me into a few years of just talking to everybody who came to my door or at the college university campus, uh, going up to the Hare Krishnas or others who would be out there sharing their faith. And, um, and so I went to Utah in 1987 on a short-term mission trip with Youth with a Mission and fell in love with the Mormon people and ended up uh, meeting a girl here in Utah in 1987, and I married her in 1988, and then uh, lived in San Diego for all of my life until 2010 when I ended up uh, moving to Utah so that I could be full-time in ministry to the Latter-day Saint people. Okay, so uh, one part I'm noticing, uh, you met a girl there, and you married her next year. Yeah, uh, yeah, I. Uh, it, she's she's a Christian. She mm-hmm. uh, she was part of the youth with the mission team that I was with, and uh, she knew that I was uh, I was going to seminary at that time, and I I didn't feel like I was called to the pastoral ministry, but I felt like I was supposed to be involved in parachurch ministry. I had done some work with another ministry in San Diego called Making Disciples Ministry, and uh, decided uh, that that would be where I would go. And uh, even though I didn't live in Utah. Meeting Bill McKeever in 1989 was instrumental in me being in this ministry today. Mm-hmm. I just find that interesting because I met a girl in 2009. I married her in 2010. So, like, okay. yeah, we kind of did the same kind of thing here. Uh huh. Great. Now, we're talking today about the book Sharing the Good News with Mormons. And you wrote this with Sean McDowell, who's been on the show twice for all interested. Now, what what was the what's the goal in this book here? Well, the idea for this book came in 2016. I came up with the idea when I was talking to somebody who asked the question we get all the time. What's the one way mm-hmm. I could use evangelistically to bring a Mormon to become a Christian? We get that asked regularly. And I laughed about it, as I usually do, and say, you know, I wish somebody would come up with that way and tell me how to do it so that it would be instant success every time you you practice that particular tactic. But um, And and so I told him that, and I, I said something that I had never said before. I said, I wish, because there are so many good ideas out there, so many wonderful approaches, I wish somebody would take all of the different approaches and put it into a book. Well, that night I went to sleep and I woke up in the middle of the night and I said to myself, you know, that's a book that really does need to be written. And so I ended up uh, uh, in the next few weeks, I told some of my friends in the ministry that I was thinking about putting together a self-published book that would involve these different tactics. It would have to be a short chapter. And I said at that time, I just came up with a number, 3000 words, which is about five uh, pages on tight pages, single space, not very much room, but I wanted to be able to talk about their philosophy, practical tactics, and and uh, the strategy that they use. So I started to do that and got some of my friends doing that. And then I had a phone call, I think it was in December of 2016, from uh, two friends of mine, actually, uh, who ended up writing chapters in this book. Andrew Rappaport is an open-air evangelist in New Jersey, And Jay Warner Wallace in California is a friend of mine. He wrote the book, Cold Case Christianity. Mm -hmm. And both of them heard about the book, and they said, Eric, this is not a book that you'll want to self-publish. In fact, 
uh, Jim Wallace told me, if you want to print up 500 of those and get those distributed, good luck, because that's very difficult to distribute the book. But I told him, I said, well, wait a minute, this is a book that is on evangelism to a specific people group, and they just don't sell very well. And I knew that a publisher probably wouldn't want it. And I have published with three uh, previous publishers, very well known, and I just didn't want to go with the hassle. And they gave me some ideas. They said, get some people like ourselves, but some people that people know uh, as well. And I did. I started contacting guys like Mark Middleberg, who's worked a lot with Lee Strobel. Uh, I, I, I contacted David Geisler, the son of Norm Geisler, and a few others to go along with the people who were experts in the Mormonism. And uh, and so then I started to try to pitch that to a publisher that had published a book of mine before, and they thought about it seriously, and then they wrote me back, and I asked them why they didn't take the book, and they said this, it is difficult to market and promote a compilation of this kind, especially with a somewhat narrow topic, which is what I figured. Uh, while the mission of the book is important, it will be very challenging to make it profitable, which obviously a Christian publisher isn't just publishing for ministry's sake. They have to make a profit because they have people to pay. I understand mm -hmm. that fully. But then I contacted my friend Sean McDowell, who you say you've had on your show a few times, and uh, he's well-known. He's written over, I think, 15, 17 books. Uh, he's now known as Dr. Sean McDowell because he has his Ph.D. He's the son of Josh McDowell, mm -hmm. which if you don't know Sean, you probably know Josh McDowell. He's a friend of mine. Uh, he uh, He's involved in Christian education, as I was, for many years. And uh, so we are good friends going way back. And I asked him, I said, uh, Sean, I, I don't know what to do. I'm having people tell me I need to get this thing published. I don't know who to go to. And he said, you know what, let me uh, take this over to Harvest House. I think this would be a great fit for them. So he pitched it over to Harvest House, and Harvest House asked me for a, um, a full-on sell uh, of the book. And so I wrote up the paperwork, sent it over. And a few weeks later, Sean calls me up, and he says, Eric, I've got good news and bad news. And I said, what is it? And he says, the good news is they want your book, and they're willing to put an advance forward and get this thing published. I said, what's the bad news? He said, well, they want me involved with it as well. I said, that's not bad news. That's fine with me. So we're the general editors, but there are 26 total people, 24 others besides Sean and I who are mm -hmm. writing this book, and they come from a variety of perspectives. We've got seven PhDs. We've got three Utah pastors. We've got apologists. Uh, and a lot of people may not recognize most of the names, but you're going to recognize some of these names. If you've been involved in any kind of outreach to Mormons, you're going to recognize Sandra Tanner. She's in there. We've got uh, Lynn Wilder, as you mentioned. Um, we've got uh, uh, some others that are just outstanding in what they do. And so what we've done is take their tactic, their approach of how they like to do evangelism and put them together in one book that I think will help many people think outside the box, that there's not just one way of doing evangelism. There are many ways. Mm -hmm. Yeah, Jay Warner Lawrence, you talk about, he's a friend of the show as well. He's been on three times. Oh, wow. Now. And I encourage you to go back and listen to him. It was Cold Case Christianity, Cold Case Christianity for Kids, and God's mm -hmm. Crime Scene. And we've had Lynn Wilder on twice talking about unveiling grace. And leaving Mormonism, and that second time she was on with Corey Miller as well, who's in the book. Uh -huh. Now, right. before we start talking about evangelism strategies, I remember I, 
I got an email recently offering me a chance to get a free King James Bible. Well, I knew immediately what this was from. And proceeded to go on Facebook and tell my friends that, yep, I'm going to be having Mormons come by. And my friends, me even fellow apologists, were quite happy to hear that. Wanted to know how big it would go and such. Uh-huh. And then I had someone come in and say, I don't know why you're going to do this. But Mormons are Christians just like us. or just another denomination and such. And we shouldn't be going out and attacking one another. And you know, there are a lot of Christians who do think that way, but... Mormons are just another denomination, just like, say, Presbyterians or Baptists or Roman right. Catholics or anything like that. Are they, are they right? I mean, is Mormonism just another branch of Christianity? And that's a question we get a lot. In fact, in our book, Bill McKeever and I wrote called Answering Mormons Questions, Ready Responses for Inquiring Latter-day mm-hmm. Saints. We wrote that in 2013 mm-hmm. with Kriegel. And chapter one, the we have 36 questions that we actually address, the most common kinds of questions, and we put probably the most common question as chapter one. Why won't you accept Mormons as Christians? Do you think we're a cult? Now, that word cult is, uh, we don't use that term, right. but sometimes they'll ask us, because cult has a uh, mm-hmm. negative connotation to it, like you're mm-hmm. a Hare Krishna or a Muni or something like that. Right. But at the same time, we need to understand if we underst- if if we research Mormonism and read what its scriptures say, read what the leaders say. Uh, they have a prophet uh, currently. It's the seventeenth prophet, Russell M. Nelson. He has two counselors. Those three men are known as the first presidency, and you have twelve apostles. What those men say, those fifteen men have the power to write scripture as well. And what they have taught, what they do continue to teach is night and day when it comes to biblical Christianity, because in Christianity we have certain ideas of who God is, who Jesus is, how a person receives salvation, how do we get authority, and Mormonism, I'm going to be straightforward with you, without attacking, without being a quote-unquote anti-Mormon, Mormonism denies or distorts every fundamental teaching of the historic Christian church. There's not one case where you could say, oh, they're close to us on this. Yes, they do have the same language. And I think that's where the people who might have been saying, oh, Mormons are Christians too. They've talked to their Mormon friends and they've asked their Mormon friends, so do you guys believe in Jesus? And and the Mormon will say, well, of course, he's in our church's name. We're the church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. And, mm-hmm. well, do you believe in salvation by grace? And, oh, yes, of course we believe in salvation by grace. And you can go down the line. Do you believe the Bible? Yes, we do, so on and so forth. And the problem is there's not a definition of terms. Instead of just taking at face value, oh, they believe in the same Jesus I do, it would be better for us to say, oh, you believe in Jesus. Can you define who Jesus is for you? Mm-hmm. And ask lots of questions, like Lynn Wilder's chapter that you mentioned mm-hmm. of using the Colombo tactic. Let them be the experts. Let them tell you what they believe. And the more they talk and the less we assume, the better you're going to understand that there are tremendous differences between 
Mormonism and Christianity. And that's not saying that Mormons aren't nice people. They certainly are some of the nicest people I know. I live amongst them. I live in Utah. So in my neighborhood, about 60% of all the homes here are LDS homes. They're great people. They take Mm -hmm. care of their yards. I I can leave my door unlocked at night in a big city, and I'm not even that scared. Uh, But at the same time, I care very much about these people. That's why I moved here in 2010, because Utah is probably, in the United States, one of the best mission fields, if you consider it to be a mission field, that there are people who are so genuine and loving, and at the same time, they are so lost, because the way that they view God, the way they view how they're going to get uh, salvation is not the same as what the Bible teaches. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, uh, I think it's also interesting to note that technically, the Mormons fired the first shot in this, I used to live with a roommate before I got married, and he's big into apologetics too. And we had Mormons come by sometimes, which was always great for us. And something we also did whenever they came by is we'd stop, say, like Little Caesars and get a pizza for us to share together, get some Gatorade and such. Because, I mean, these guys are usually away from their families, they don't get to have much of anything, and so we treated them like honored guests. Right. And I remember they, they wanted to watch this video with us about the restoration of a church and such. And it went to Joseph Smith's first vision. And mm-hmm. my friend and I both knew what was in that first vision. And we were waiting to see if it would be in there. And lo and behold, it wasn't. There was mm-hmm. nothing in there about all the creeds of the churches are an abomination to me. But right. that's what I said. The Mormons technically fired the first shot. Well, you're exactly right. In fact, if you go to the Pearl of Great Price, and you have to understand in Mormonism, there are four scriptures. They do believe the Bible, mm-hmm. as far as it's translated correctly. The King James Version is what they officially use. They also have the Book of Mormon. They have the Doctrine and Covenants in the Pearl of Great Price. Mm-hmm. And the Pearl of Great Price, uh, there is a testimony of Joseph Smith. And in that, he writes the history of this first vision you're talking about in chapter 1. And in verses 19 and 20, he says that he, he asked God the Father and Jesus, who appeared to him when he was supposedly 14 years of age, which of all the churches were true, and they were told that none of them were, that all of their creeds were an abomination in God's sight. So you're right. If, um, in the very beginning, God is telling Joseph Smith, don't listen to what they have. They don't have the authority. The gospel has been there, but it's just been lost soon after the death of the apostles. When that happens, we're not quite sure. They never do come out with an official date of when the uh, gospel was lost, but it had to be restored. Something lost needs to be found. And so it was Joseph Smith who, a decade later in 1830, founded the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints as a church of authority that would bring back the things that were lost, including Uh, Later on, the priesthood, the Aaronic and Melchizedek priesthood, which the Mormons believe men have, uh, boys at 12 and and then 18, they get the Aaronic and Melchizedek priesthoods. Mm -hmm. They believe were the ancient priesthoods, and and they believe that they have the authority. Their baptism is the only baptism that will suffice for—and they are baptismal regenerationists. They do believe that you have to get baptized, not in your— 
Protestant church, you have to get baptized in a Mormon church. And there are other things, many other things you have to do. The mm-hmm. temple certainly being important. Uh, you live in Atlanta. There's a temple there. I've In our state of Utah, we've got, uh, oh, 15 temples or so. There's 170, I believe, in, in the uh, world mm-hmm. today. And that's where the special work takes place, where Mormons hope to someday be able to qualify to become gods and goddesses. That's what Mormonism teaches. Mm-hmm. Now, it, it is important to say that they really are good people. I, I don't mean in the theological sense, of course. So don't yeah. get, don't be writing me a lot of emails to them that no one's good and such. Yeah. You know what I'm saying? I mean, we can side actually with the Mormons on many political and social issues. I mean, when Prop right. 8 was going on in California, I think we are all grateful for the Mormons' help, and I think that in 2012, many of us did wind up voting for Mitt Romney, a Mormon. Right, right. I mean, yeah, I mean, socially, uh, uh, well, Mormons are typically conservative. They mm-hmm. they don't believe in many of the things that evangelical Christians would accept, like, for instance, uh, abortion. You know, I mean, abortion, uh, most Mormons are going to say that's wrong. And and so it, it becomes kind of interesting when you do get involved with politics. You mentioned Mitt Romney. That was mm-hmm. kind of controversial. In fact, Mitt mm-hmm. Romney, just a few weeks ago, uh, criticized a pastor in Texas because of uh, his past work. Called, um, his pastor's name is Jeffries, and, and he has called the Mormons a cult and that they're not true Christians. And so he kind of attacked that. And so there are a lot of Christians back in 2012 who weren't sure, did they really want somebody who pledged allegiance first and foremost in the temple to the Mormon God? And so that was kind of controversial in its own sake. But uh, regardless, um, yeah, I, I don't think uh, I have any problem to say that if we sat down and talked about anything other than re- than religion, uh, for the most part, when I have actually in my neighborhood, I've sat down and we get along great because we have the same interests, we have the same uh, ideas of politics, of social, of how we should take care of our families. Families are so very important in Mormonism, of course, and uh, and un- and unfortunately, though, as well as we can get along with those other things, if we don't have the spiritual uh, unity, then there's a problem. And I have a problem here in Utah. There are some churches who sidle up to the Latter-day Saint uh, uh, churches. They will, uh, excuse me, they will uh, um, actually have services together at Christmas. They will do uh, uh, joint Christmas pageants together uh, and that happens. Even in the town where I'm at, we have a church that does that every year. They switch off. One year it's at the local stake center. The next year it's at the church. Whoever's uh, place it's at, that's the person who gets to preach. I have a problem with that because as much as we can like our Mormon friends, I don't think we should be worshiping with them. Yeah. And when we talk with Mormons when they come to our house, though, it can often be but first off, before we get back, let's even talk about having a house. There are some people who will say, well, you know, Second John says, don't let someone in with a false teaching into your house. So when Mormons come to our door, we should turn them away. Uh, that's an interesting point. Second John 10 and 11. And uh, actually, we have a chapter by Sandra Tanner mm-hmm. who used that to say there's no problem if you are mature enough to be able to invite Mormons into your house. 
I actually had a pastor this past week, now that you mentioned it, mm-hmm. who wrote me and criticized us for having that in the book. He's on the more conservative realm. And we actually have a an article on our website, mrm.org, which stands for Mormonism, Mormonism Research Ministry. Mm-hmm. And he criticized me because he tried to show that, well, the word house there is literally a house. And I, I don't believe that for a second. Uh, I, I believe, well, and his point was he tells, he's a pastor and he tells his congregation that they can go and sit on the porch with them, but not to invite them into the house. Well, that draws up some interesting perspectives here because mm-hmm. let's say the, the Mormon needs to use the bathroom. Are we going to say, oh, well, I guess you can't use the bathroom because you're not allowed inside my house. So if you want to use some the bathroom, words in our back, if you want to take yeah. care of things. <laughs> there you go. I, I mean, uh, I mean, or or uh, you're not allowed to give them a drink of water or I mean, what if they're thirsty? Uh, you know, so I, I think it's up to each person how they want to do it. But it's saying that you can mm-hmm. go out to the front porch. Well, are you going to do that in January? Are you going to be able to have a productive conversation with somebody on your porch in Utah? I don't know how it is in Atlanta, but in in Utah, I can get down to 10 degrees and it's cold out there. So so if you feel that you don't want to talk to the Mormon missionaries at your door, Mm -hmm. I think it's easily uh, receivable if you just say, you know, I'm not that interested. Thank you very much. Have a good day. Don't slam the door in their face. Don't hide Mm -hmm. behind the couch. Don't tell them they're going to hell, you know, or or something like that. A lot of Christians think they're doing positive. They're actually doing negative. We talk to a lot of former missionaries who come back and say, oh, my goodness, I, we were mistreated when we were down south in Georgia, and people were uh, were so mean to us. And, and so for me, what I like to do is I like to come on in. And if they would stay for dinner, I'll have them over for dinner. Yeah. I, I certainly understand uh, what they're trying to do. They're trying to share the, their truth with me. But, you know, these guys are 18 years old now. 18, they could be as young as 18 as, you know, they could be old as uh, 23, 24. Uh, the females are 19 now. They lowered the age a few years ago. But, you know, I think at my stage of life, I should be able to handle missionaries who come and be able to share with them the truth of what I believe the gospel teaches, and and do it in a compassionate way. The Bible says that we're to always have an answer for everyone who asks us to give the reason for the hope we have, but we're supposed to do it in gentleness and respect. And I think that's something that a lot of people forget when they do have these missionaries come and realize these guys are away, as you mentioned, from home for up to two years. Uh, They're only allowed to call home twice a year. They're allowed to call on Mother's Day and Christmas. Uh, They are allowed email communication once a week. Uh, They can write letters and things like that. But, I mean, they they are making a sacrifice. I just would hate to see people use 2 John 10 and 11 in a way that I don't think was ever intended because back in the days that the apostles lived, they actually met in homes and the point that that John was making was saying, don't invite them into your church and let a false teacher take over the pulpit. Very mm-hmm. much like what I just yeah. mentioned the, the Christian church does here. There's one church that I know of that actually mm-hmm. will invite the bishop up to its pulpit to preach the, that sermon for Christmas. Well, I, I disagree with that. But if you're going to have them in your house, make sure you know your own faith. Make sure you, uh, you are solid in your beliefs. And I would say say, make sure you have some understanding of Mormonism, or you will end up talking past each other, because you're going to use the same terms 
but you have different meanings. One of the things we did in our book, Sharing the Good News with Mormons, is we put a dictionary in the back. What do they mean by some of the terms? So at the very back, if you look, if you had the book, you would be able to say, oh, I don't know what ordinance is. Well, an ordinance is a ceremony in which a Mormon makes a covenant with God, such as baptism, sacraments, and works performed in an LDS temple. So we've tried to make it this book as helpful as possible so that somebody who may not know very much about Mormonism can still learn a little bit about Mormonism and learn the tactic. And if you know what you believe and understand well enough what they believe, I think you can be successful in communicating truth to them. I like what you said. I was about taking them out to dinner. I've told this story before about, I showed you, and since you haven't heard it before, but like I said, before I got married, my roommate and I were both big into apologetics and we're both classic gamers and such. And mm-hmm. we had two Mormons, one who was coming for the first time and one who, he'd been a few years before, and we were sure this guy was doubting a lot based on the questions we were asking. And we had come over one Saturday, said we were going to take him out to this little deli near our apartment, which was actually within walking distance, maybe like, mm-hmm. three, maybe like a quarter of a mile or so away. And it, it, it's still thinking about, because we've been about, Two Mormons, two Christian apologists walking to a Jewish deli together for a meal. It was a joke right there. Yeah. Anyway, the new guy who came by, he saw our game systems. And, oh, that's all he could talk about, going back about classic video games from the past and such. So we mm-hmm. go out to dinner, and the whole time this guy's talking to us, talk, 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 about all these games and such. We're happy to do that. But on the way back, we're walking back there, and this guy still wants to keep talking. And my roommate is very shrewd because he notices the other guy, the one who we think is doubting, next to me. And so he kind of leads this guy far enough away that we can be with him. I shot of each other still walking together, but so that he can't hear. And I'm getting to talk to this guy one-on-one and get to address a lot of questions and such. And they left, we think... Yeah, someone's going to get a really good talking to back at the Mormon ward and such yeah. right now about this. Like there was even a time that they uh, said they couldn't come because their car was in the shop or something. And I mm-hmm. said, where do you live? I'll come get you. And I did. And the way I saw it, I've got them now with me in my car about 10 or 15 minutes. There was no escaping. I can give them the gospel right here, right now. <laughs> yeah. I mean... Uh, but I, I do think that's an effective strategy. Treat them like honored guests. Take them out to dinner, things like that. Yeah, I mean, if, and if you understand that these are real people, your Mormon neighbors, coworkers, uh, the missionaries at your door, that they have needs, they have desires, they ha- they want the same thing you do in life. I mean, they want to be able to enjoy their families. They want to be able to know God in the best possible way. And so meeting them where they're at, as you did with the gaming. I mean, uh, that's something that you have that I don't have, but uh, you use whatever makes you tick, and uh, it'll be interesting to see how you can make that relate to those uh, Latter-day Saints who might get the gospel from you in a different way than, than anybody else they will run into. In fact, we have found, as far as we're talking missionaries, we have found that many missionaries we meet 
really never had a clear presentation of the gospel. I'll ask return missionaries on a regular basis. You know, I'll, I'll share the gospel with them, and I'll say, have you ever heard it like this? Well, not quite. I, I didn't hear it like that before. Or, you know, they'll ask questions about the Trinity, you know, mm-hmm. and they say, oh, yeah. I always like to ask, well, what do you think the Trinity teaches? Oh, yeah, well, we've had we've had Christians tell us, you know, there's three gods and one God, and they come oh, up with gosh. these different ideas, and you say— well, that's not really an accurate portrayal, though that's what they told us. And so one of the things that we encourage when we go speak at churches is really get to understand what it is you believe that makes Christianity unique so that you might be able to share gospel truth with people who are starving and need the gospel presented to them. And that's why I like this book, Sharing the Good News with, with Mormons, because there is not one way to do it. But you need to have ownership of your Christian faith. You need to own your own faith, not borrowing it from your wife, not borrowing, or if you're a kid, borrowing it from your parents, uh, or you're just a cultural Christian, you're not going to have any effect on the Latter-day Saints. In fact, more than half of the Mormon converts come from Christian backgrounds Mm -hmm. because they become dissatisfied with their, uh, if they're in uh, Latin America, Catholicism, they just don't, aren't satisfied with it. And the Mormons come along, and they're very active there, and they grow leaps and bounds in countries like that. And so just because you call yourself a Christian or you say you believe in Jesus doesn't make you immune, immune to uh, having a conversion experience to that religion. So you need to be guarded. You need to own that faith. But meeting them where they're at, and I think what the example you gave is awesome, because, uh, I mean, to, to go out of your way to drive them uh, and, and be able to talk to them and present the gospel to them. You took advantage of the opportunity, mm-hmm. and uh, Jesus said we're supposed to be uh, shrewd as serpents and innocent as doves. I think uh, you fulfilled that command. Isn't it the saying of a Mormon church to how the conversion they give it, they said that they baptize the Baptist church every week? I'm sorry, I, I didn't quite catch that question, that they— it, that they've been said that with their conversions, they baptize a Baptist church every week. Oh, oh yeah. Well, yeah. I mean, and I don't. I, I haven't heard that term specifically, but yeah. I mean, they're very proud of the fact that uh, you know that uh, people who have partial truth. If you only have the Bible, you have partial truth, and so the missionaries will want you to read the Book of Mormon. And it was interesting you mentioned earlier that uh, the missionaries were bringing over a Bible. That's pretty rare. Usually they, they're going to, they know you have a Bible. They're going to want you to read the Book of Mormon. At the very end of the Book of Mormon, in Moroni 10, the last chapter of the book, it talks about how can you find truth? Well, you are to take the message of this Book of Mormon, read it, and then pray about it to see if it's true. And you have to do it with a sincere heart, with true intent. You have to want it to be true in essence, and then God will give you a testimony. What the DNC Doctrines and Covenants section nine says, it's a burning in your bosom. And and so this idea is you can now beyond a shadow of a doubt, forget the evidence, forget the history. You, by praying about this book and praying about this religion, can come to uh, an understanding that Joseph Smith was a true prophet of God, that this church is the restored church on the face of the earth, that uh, Russell M. Nelson, who's now, I think he's 94 years of age, he's the true prophet, a direct connection we have with God. So they have answers to life's questions, where we came from, why we're here, and where we are going. And they think they have 
done a much better job than what the Christian church has done, although they, they're not going to criticize you. They're going to accept your Christianity, and they'll say, oh, be the best Christian you can be, but you need to know down deep inside, they don't think you're going to the same place they hope to go to unless you join Mormonism. Mm-hmm. Now, something that we have to keep in mind also with Mormons is I know a lot about Mormonism. Actually, I've read through all the sacred scriptures of Mormonism and such, mm-hmm. and I probably only use about 10% of what I know, I'd say, because it can be tempting to go and beat down a Mormon with right. all these problems in the Book of Mormon and all, and all these this bad theology of, of progressive, you know, you know, divine progression and such, but the danger here is that you can do such a great job of destroying Mormonism. Some people are bad. You destroy any theism as well in them. Yeah. It's not the case that, oh, Mormonism is false. Well, Jesus must be true. Yeah, and you have to understand that the goal in sharing our faith with Mormons is not to destroy them, as you're talking about. Certainly, we need to know what they believe, and certainly we're going to believe that their doctrines are not true. But there's a way of talking to people. There's a way of handling the situation so that we don't destroy their belief in God. We have found, unfortunately, that the majority of people who leave Mormonism, and let me tell you right now, they are leaving in droves. I live here in Utah. We see them coming out on a pretty much weekly basis. People become dissatisfied. Well, here's the problem. They are leaving, but they're not leaving for Christianity. Do you know where they're going? They're headed. They are going to atheism at the very best, agnosticism, they uh, they have been told all their lives that if the LDS church is not true, then nothing else is. So when they leave Mormonism, why would they want to go to a church that has no authority? It's on a much lesser scale in their minds than the Mormon church was. And Mormonism was as high as you could go. If that can't be true, then nothing else is going to satisfy uh, this this view that there actually is a God. And so In fact, the first four chapters that we deal with in sharing the good news with Mormons is written to those, is written actually to help those dealing with Mormons who are thinking about leaving or who have left. And so we have a chapter written by Mark Middleberg that kind of talks about what a worldview is, uh, and, and he calls it the straight thinking approach. And then chapter two, Sean McDowell talks about just the evidence for God. Some people might read this chapter. Why are you writing this in a book to Mormons? Because we, if you are going to deal with Mormons, you better understand the arguments that are brought out by Christopher Hitchens and Dawkins and the rest of the new atheist crowd. And so he goes through and he gives the evidence approach. Why do we believe in God? It seems like it makes good sense based on where the evidence is. And we want to go with where the evidence goes. And then chapter three, Matt Slick has a chapter called, Did God Really Say So? The Reliability of the Bible Approach, because one of the things that Mormons are taught is that the Bible is not fully trustworthy, and of the four scriptures, it's the one that they will doubt the first. Mm-hmm. And so uh, we wanted to, we wanted people to have this idea that you can trust the Bible. And then chapter four, Rob Bowman gives a great chapter on Jesus, the Christ-centered approach, because the Jesus of Mormonism is different than the Jesus of Christianity. So in those first four chapters, they're not really 
the approach is like the other uh, 20 chapters that we have, but rather they're helping the Christian, how do we deal with these issues when we're talking to a Mormon? And all of a sudden he starts quoting Dawkins. Richard Dawkins is well known, and they talk about flying spaghetti monsters, and well, I don't even know where to go with it. I thought I was just dealing with the Mormon. Well, they're headed toward atheism, or they are in atheism. You better have answers for that person as well. And uh, since you mentioned Rob Bowman, I'll say he's been on here quite a few times as well, I think. Okay. Three times, most recent time, talking with an ex-Jehovah's Witness on him about reaching witnesses. But you'd be, in, you'd be interested, especially in the second time he was on, talking about Joseph Smith's seer stone that was released a few years ago. Yes. So we had a really good discussion about Mormonism. Yeah. Yes. Now, now, something interesting I know about this book is very little is talking about all the problems with the Book of Mormon or the Doctrines and Covenants or Joseph Smith's history and such. You really don't seem to go into that. I, I think this book would be kind of be seen like, in like a supplemental book. If you have all that knowledge, how do you give that knowledge out? Well, and your this book was not written for an overview of Mormonism, obviously, in 300 pages. And what our purpose of this book is, was to uh, um, uh, uh, practical ways of dealing with, let's say, salvation. How do we get on the topic? How can we uh, bring up illustrations that are going to be helpful? Uh, we have a book, and I'm not trying to sell my books today. I've already mentioned answering Mormon's questions. But Mormonism 101, we wrote that in 2015 with Baker Books. And this is a revised and expanded version of what we did back in 2000 with Baker, Bill McKeever, and myself. And this book is meant to show you all that Mormonism teaches and how it's different. Now, in the book, Sharing the Good News with Mormons, we'll mention those things. Like, for instance, um, on page, I just flipped it open on page 103 in Chip Thompson's chapter. He talks about pre-mortality or pre-existence, and he goes into that. But he doesn't spend much time if you don't really know much about pre-existence you probably are going to have to uh, find that, whether in another book, or you can go to our website, mrm.org. We actually have a dictionary there as well. Uh, and like I said, we put the dictionary in the back of this book, short dictionary, so that somebody who doesn't know very much about Mormonism can still say, ah, you know, I don't quite know what that term means. Ah, okay, I see how that is different than what Christianity teaches. But some of the tactics we have here, you probably need to know a little bit more about Mormonism than not, but there are other tactics. You don't have to know hardly anything. For instance, uh, Aaron Shafawalaf wrote a chapter in our book, and it was called Engaging in Gospel Discussions, the Keep It Simple Approach, chapter 13. Mm -hmm. And he actually uh, he, we've spoken in churches here in the last few weeks, and his big thing is you don't have to know very much about Mormonism at all to be able to use my tactic of just engaging in gospel discussions. And he has what are called Jesus stories. And uh, so he he likes to just quote right out of the gospels and tell stories that Jesus would tell and, uh, and understanding where they're coming from in Mormonism, but being able to use that in a productive way to get the Latter-day Saints to think. We were out evangelizing at Temple Square a week ago, and I had somebody ask me, so why are you guys out here? And we said, we're trying to get Latter-day Saints to think. Well, what do you mean by that? Well, you're talking to us, and you're having to think through what you believe, because we're questioning your, 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 uh, your whole worldview, and so you better have some reasons why you believe the way you do instead of just saying, I have a testimony, because we're not going to be convinced with that. So that's what we're trying to do for the Christian, is get them to think 
And because we've had a lot of Christians say, I, I just can't talk to them. Well, yes, you can. There are many different possibilities. You just have to take a little bit of effort. And if we really believe in the difference between heaven and hell, wouldn't we care enough to maybe learn a little bit so that we could have a productive discussion? I'm not saying you have to bring this up at work every day or with your families or anything else, but let me say, it does come up. People will ask you questions. So what do you believe Mm -hmm. about blank? And so then that's your opportunity and the work that you've done in the past, the study you've done, say, oh, okay, and then see how you can lead that right into a gospel presentation. So they could possibly be presented with the gospel in a way that nobody else ever was able to do for them. Mm-hmm. And since you mentioned Mormonism 101, I did look it up. If anyone's interested, it's for sale on Amazon right now. The paperback is fourteen ninety eight. The Kindle is eleven ninety nine. So that's Mormonism 101. And yeah, I I do like what you were talking about, how you don't have to know everything and such. Right. The method you gave it. It kind of reminds me of, say, the Socratic method. Just go, ask them questions, and get them started, get them thinking about things out there. And, yeah, this this is going to happen to us more and more, not just with Mormons, but with every group out there. But today in the church, apologetics isn't a luxury. It's a necessity. Right. Oh, yeah, I, I think you're right. And the... Uh, idea of that many Christians have is you just go to church on Sunday and you live the life the rest of the week the way you want. And no, I mean, we have to be thinking. The internet has caused the information to go all over the place, and atheism is growing. Let's just be honest. I, I mean, uh, people are, are uh, you know, they're listening to what others are saying. If you don't take ownership of that faith, and I believe in Christianity as truthful, as historical, as scientific. I believe that Christianity answers the questions that we have that no other religion or atheism can do, because uh, I want to go with where the evidence uh, leads us. And uh, and so, again, I, I think there's no doubt that if a person does not have that ownership of their own faith, and you need to go and read some books on Christianity, maybe a systematic theology, I'm not sure what you need, Uh, get discipled by somebody in your church. But once you have taken that ownership and you really know what you believe, you shouldn't be scared to talk to the atheist, the Mormon, Mm -hmm. the Jehovah's Witness at your door. I always like to look at when the Mormon comes to my door, man, they were out thinking they were doing evangelism, but I get to do evangelism, and I wasn't even planning on it. Sometimes mm-hmm. that happens, and 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 so, uh, but apologetics and understanding why we believe the way we do, I think, is crucial. Yeah, and I, I also like how you talk when they give their testimony; it doesn't convince you and such. Because honestly, I've dealt with them so many times. I think that usually, whenever I start hearing my testimony, going back to my gaming thinking and such, it's like. Okay, I've just hit the weak point, and they've given the typical weak point response there. I mean, it might sound convincing to them, but all I get convinced of is, you just got asked a question you can't answer, and now you're going to your fallback position. Yeah. Um, you know, it's interesting, the testimony, because the, the Mormon does have a testimony. He, he, You'll know at the end of a conversation, they're going to start off by saying, 
I testify to you. That's how it starts mm-hmm. off. And every, the first Sunday of every month, they have what's called Fast and Testimony Sunday, where they practice these, where people will get up and actually give, uh, you know, and it's always going to be the same idea. I, be, I testify to you that Joseph Smith is a true prophet of God, and so on and so forth, and telling you all the uh, traits of the Mormon church that they believe makes it true. But here's the thing. You, as a Christian, also have a testimony. And so if you're listening to a Mormon tell you their testimony, I don't. I think every Christian should practice a two-minute testimony that they could—I'm not talking a 15-minute of how you were on drugs and how you became a Christian and, you know, all the things that are—you know, all the stories, but just in a quick way, well, let me, t- let me testify to you. I believe that Jesus is the Christ. I believe that Jesus died for my sins, That you know, and you go through and you, you give a gospel presentation, and you say, I believe that anybody— who receives him into their lives can have eternal life right now, not based on works, because the Bible says in Ephesians 2, 8, 9, we're saved by grace. It's not of ourselves. It is the gift of God, not by works. And if you can do that, you're going to get the Mormon to think. And he's like, for instance, if you talk about, as I just cited in a loose way, Ephesians 2, 8, 9, and, and I give that in a short little testimony, they go, oh, well, wait, wait a minute, grace. Uh, well, so you just believe that you have to say a little prayer and that you can go out and murder people and commit adultery and you're going to be okay? And I said, no, 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 I didn't say that. I, I said, this is what the Bible teaches. And I, I, I will cite Ephesians 2, um, 2, 8, 9. And, and then they'll say, well, doesn't the Bible teach that faith without works is dead? And that's James 2, 20 and 26. And I'll, I'll say, absolutely, I agree with that. I believe good works are important in the life of a Christian. But the Bible says in Romans 3.28, it's justification by faith alone, the rallying cry of the Protestant Reformation. It's based on God's imputation that he provided for us a gift that we could not provide for ourselves through our own works. And so what by giving my testimony and maybe sharing something that I believe that I can know that I have eternal life, and I have a verse to support it. 1 John 5.13 says that I can know this, and, uh, and I say, I believe in good works. Uh, in fact, don't just quote verses 8 and 9 of Ephesians chapter 2. It says we're saved by grace through faith, and it's not by works. But then verse 10 goes on and says we are God's workmanship created by Christ Jesus to do good works, which he prepared in advance for us to do. And I like to say, see, that's what James is talking about. Somebody who calls himself a Christian, then there should be what Paul says in Galatians 5, good fruit. Jesus said, you'll know them by their fruit. And so the fruit is going to be the sign that there really was a regeneration, that there was new life inside that person. The Holy Spirit came and um, lived with is is living with that person, and so I believe in good works as part of what we call sanctification. But as far as justification, it's only by grace. Now the Mormon will say he believes in grace, but you have to understand what does the Mormon mean by that. Well, and you can always ask this question using that Socratic method you mentioned mm-hmm. earlier. Ask them what do you mean by grace? Just what do you mean? In fact, that's in the book Tactics by Greg Kokel. That's the number one question. We're talking about that book. Yeah, you've had everybody on there. Those are good people. Greg Kokel wrote an excellent book. Lynn Wilder uses his Columbo tactic in her chapter. Mm -hmm. And so 
what do you mean by that? Let's them tell you, and then all of a sudden you understand, well, okay, so grace, basically, in a nutshell, according to Mormonism, grace and the atonement of Christ, I'll use that term, gives a person the ability to go to one kingdom, one of the three kingdoms available, called the celestial, terrestrial, or telestial. Everybody, because of our righteousness in a previous life, we call it the preexistence. Mormonism says we lived as spirit children of Heavenly Father and Heavenly Mother in a place we don't remember, but we were spirits. There was a conflict in this uh, state. Uh, there was Jesus, the firstborn. There was Lucifer, another child of God. They disagreed as to who should be the Savior of the world. They end up having a disagreement, and it divided the spirits. Two-thirds of us chose Jesus. One-third of us chose Lucifer. Lucifer and those spirit brothers and sisters we had were cast out of heaven, never given a chance to have a body. And so here we are. We were brought to this earth because we did choose Jesus, and we made the right choice. So because of God's grace, we're going to get one of three kingdoms. But Mormonism doesn't teach that you're going to make the top kingdom, the celestial kingdom, without full obedience to the commandments. And Mm -hmm. so they have what's called exaltation or individual salvation as compared to general salvation. Exaltation comes by complete obedience to God's commandments. And if you ask of a Latter-day Saint, if he is doing what literally the Book of Mormon says in 1 Nephi 3, 7 is possible, that God gives no commandment unto men except that he can keep those commandments. So the commandments are keepable. Are you keeping them? And I have talked to a lot of Latter-day Saints, and unless they're joking, but sometimes you might get somebody who may say they are, then I always like to say, can I talk to your spouse so I can find out for sure? And there's always a laugh with that. But if you are not keeping them as most of them admit they're not doing, then you don't know that you have eternal life in the sense of Mormonism, that you're going to be with your family forever. And the Mormons say, yes, I don't know. And that scares them. They realize they're not able to keep God's commandments. And they say, yeah, but that's what repentance is for. Well, the problem is the Doctrine and Covenants says very clearly that the reason you have repentance is so that you can stop doing the sin and not do it any longer. DNC 5843 mm-hmm. says that. And it also says in uh, DNC 82 that when you sin the same sin again, all your former sins come back to you. So it's a very scary proposition for a Latter-day Saint. And they think it's audacious to say that I'm forgiven of all my past, present, and future sins. They'll say, I'm forgiven of my past sins, but I'm certainly not forgiven of my present sins until I repent. And I'm, I can't know what I'm going to do in the future, so it's going to require me to repent And they do that every Sunday in their sacrament service. They promise, they ask for repentance and they promise they're going to keep the commandments only to go out in the parking lot and possibly break a commandment right there in the parking lot. And so they haven't even gotten home yet and they're already behind the eight ball. Mm -hmm. And, And it's so different than what Christianity says. Christianity is the one religion that doesn't ask the question like Mormonism, what must I do for God? But rather, it asks the question, what did God do for me? Mm-hmm. When we understand the difference, then I think it's going to, um, it's going to, it's going to mean a lot. And all, again, I was able to say all of these things to a Latter-day Saint, and I'm passionate about this. I'm really big on getting into this issue of forgiveness, but just because 
I was able to give my testimony as well. Listen to what their testimony is. Don't interrupt them. And when they're done, you say, well, that's interesting. I, I appreciate that. I, I, I'm for you on that. Okay, here, let me tell you mine. And, and you'll, be, you'll be fascinated if you listen and you're cordial and polite that you can have very productive conversations with Latter-day Saints. You just have to take the effort to do so. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, uh, I think it's important about also you talk about the going to the end of the books that Mormons will ask us to pray about the Book of Mormon. What right. should our response be to that? Well, they, they take a verse, as I mentioned, Moroni 10, 4. They, uh, Joseph Smith used James 1, 5 when he was 14 to see which of all the religions was true. James 1, 5 talks about praying for wisdom. Well, a couple of problems. First off, notice it's in James 1, 5, it's talking about praying for wisdom, not knowledge. Mm-hmm. But Mormons are praying for knowledge if the Mormon church is true, if the Book of Mormon is true. They're not praying for wisdom. There's a difference. Knowledge is the the uh, the facts uh, of whether or not it's true. But and so and, and if you look in the context of James one five, it's not talking about praying about religions, but rather it's talking about trials and temptations. And when you're going through some hard times, trials and temptations Pray to God for wisdom. I think that's great advice James is giving. Mm-hmm. If you're going to take this idea, pray about it, literally. And so then I like to ask the question, okay, so I'm supposed to read the Book of Mormon, and I'm supposed to pray about it. Is that correct? And they say, absolutely. Just pray about it. Because I have read the Book of Mormon. I just haven't prayed about it. And, and I say, well, okay, let me ask you this question. If I'm supposed to pray about religious books to see if that religion is true, how did you do when you prayed about the Quran? Now, most of the time, they have never even seen a Quran, although I've had a number of Latter-day Saints, oh, yeah, I prayed about the Quran, and it, it wasn't true. God showed me that. Okay, so what religion is that with? Well, that's, if they, I have found, they don't even know which religion. It's called Islam. Okay, what about the Bhagavad Gita? You know, have you prayed about the Bhagavad Gita or the Tripitaka or, you know, there's other scriptures out there. So Hinduism, Buddhism, they all have that. Why should you not read those other scriptures as well and then pray about all of them? No, the Bible says that we're not supposed to pray about a religion, but rather we're supposed to test everything. First Thessalonians 5.21. It says in 1 John uh, 4.1, it says, test the spirits to see if they are from God, because many false prophets have gone out into the world. And in Matthew 7, Jesus talks about there are many false prophets dressing up as wolves in sheep's clothing. We have to be aware. And so the idea that I can somehow use my feelings to be the parameter to determine truth is not something the Bible tells us we're supposed to do. If Mormonism, as I mentioned earlier, is denying everything that the Bible teaches, and I'm seeing that as it's laid out, and I say, well, there's a problem here. If I see a problem with the Book of Mormon, and and there's no archaeology, for instance, to support the idea that there was ever a Book of Mormon people, that ought to be taken into consideration. Mm -hmm. It ought to be taken into consideration who Joseph Smith was. Uh, I mean, there's a lot of things about him. He was not the man that many Mormons portray him to be. Uh, Why should I put 100% 100% trust in a man when there is so much at stake, and that is eternity 
And if Joseph Smith was not telling the truth, just praying about it is not going to make the facts go away. We wouldn't go and say, well, I'm thinking about um, uh, stealing my neighbor's car, so I'm going to go and pray about that. Uh, I've asked Latter-day Saints, do you ever do you ever pray about stealing a car? And they go, no. I say, well, why not? Because maybe God wants you to do it. Well, they say, uh, God says, thou shalt not steal. I said, oh, okay. So you're going with what God has said in his word. I agree with you. I don't think we should pray about whether or not we should steal the car. I think we should go with what God has. And prayer is something we definitely believe in. Latter-day Saint will oftentimes try to make you feel bad. Well, you don't believe in prayer? I do, but praying about the right things and praying about which church is true, I don't believe is the right way to go about that. I'd like to remind everyone at this point you're listening to the Deeper Waters podcast. We got Eric Johnson of the Mormonism Research Ministry here. Talking about sharing the good news of Mormons, a book he co wrote with Sean McDowell. If you're here next week, uh, Abdu Murray is going to be back with us again. Talking about his latest book, Saving Truth. So if, you, if you're interested in that, and I hope you are, come back next week and we'll be talking about that. Well now, let's get back to there. Now, the good thing also about this book is that not every technique is going to be something that hits home for everyone. Some are going to be right. hits and some are going to be misses. And for instance, for me, when I read about open air evangelism, street evangelism, as it were, speaking out in crowds, but... I'm not at Speaker's Corner, and I don't know a large contingent of Mormons around here. And also, my wife and I both have Asperger's, so initiating conversations like that is not the best thing for us. But yes. then when I read, like, I think it was Fred Anson's topic on doing evangelism on the internet, I think, yes, this, this is what I can do. This is what I do regularly already anyway. Yeah, I mean, not every idea in the book is going to to fit you. And so you mentioned Fred's. Uh, Fred does something. He has a job, actually, that he has to stay at a desk, and uh, and he has a lot of free time, apparently. he's The employer allows him, as long as he's doing his job, uh, he gets all this free time. And so he manages several sites, and he lists them in the book. You can go and see what he has, and, and mm-hmm. he, he gives instructions in the chapter of how to go about using the internet, just sitting in your home and actually be able to converse with Mormons to to encourage people. We have seen huge impacts on people with that strategy. He has done an, a, tr- a tremendous job. I don't know of anybody better on the internet than somebody like him who's, again, he's not out on the street. He lives in California. Where there are a lot of Mormons in California, but he's, I don't even know if he's ever been to Utah, but he has a very successful tactic. Now, you mentioned Andrew Rappaport's. His is the most controversial, probably, of all the tactics we put in the book, mm-hmm. but we wanted to include it because there's a time and a place for that. Andrew came to Manti with us a few weeks ago. We go out, a number of Christians, to the Mormon Miracle Pageant, uh, put on by the Mormons for over 50 years on the side of a LDS temple called Manti. If you put your finger in the center of the state of Utah, that's where Manti is. And uh, great success out there. And he does it in a great way. He doesn't yell and scream at people with bullhorns, or he doesn't hold up a big banner that says, you're all going to hell. But he does it in a good way that I think, uh, uh, for those who might want to try it out, you can actually go to a website we have called sharingwithmormons.com. Mm-hmm. In fact, today I just put up a video of him teaching uh, for a half hour on how he does it and also some examples 
of him out on the streets of New York because he does a lot of evangelism in New York and and just learn by watching. And and so you're right. I'm with you on this one. I can't do uh, um, open air preaching the way he does it. Now, I do a little Mm -hmm. bit of that when I use my tactic of the miracle of forgiveness, but it's one or two minutes at a time. It's not for 20 minutes. He's actually gone as long as three hours uh, preaching, uh, um, he, he's told me, and man, I just can't imagine talking that long and keeping your focus. But uh, and and so that's what I love about this book. This book is made for variety of opinions. You don't have to read it chapter by chapter. In fact, I've told people just go through the table of contents, find some of the ideas that you like the most, that you think sound most interesting. Start reading them. If halfway through, this is not me then don't read it. It's not a book meant to be read from cover to cover. It doesn't build on itself. Mm-hmm. Each chapter is its own separate pericope or individual story that uh, has its own approach. And if you can use it, then that is great. And if you can't, then maybe you can come up with something similar. I, You know, we didn't put every tactic in here either. I mean, there are other tactics that I did not include. I'll, I'll give you an example. Out at Manti, what happens before this pageant uh, from for three hours before, people get there early. Thousands of people come from all over the West. And so we're out in the streets and we're talking to people, sharing with them. We're doing surveys. We're doing all kinds of different tactics out there. And people are just hanging around. The play doesn't start until 930 when it gets dusk. And, and so this is the opportunity for us to talk to people. I had a, a guy that I knew. His name is Mike. 10 years ago, came, he had never been here to do anything out in the open. And he said, you know, I don't even know what I could do. And then I said, well, what do you like to do? And he says, I like to play ping pong. I said, whoa, that's interesting. I wonder if we could somehow get a table and play ping pong with people out here. It's just closed street. So he says, you know what? That's a great idea. He went to a garage sale the next day and he found a table. It wasn't a ping pong table, but it was a table large enough that he could actually paint. And he bought a, a net. And, uh, and so he would, he was a, prof- I don't know if he was professional, but he was really good. And he would play with people this, uh, this game of ping pong. And while he's praying, he's sharing with the gospel with them. It worked out amazingly. He hasn't been back since nobody's ever tried to repeat that. But this past uh, June, I was out there and I was talking to this 20 year old girl from Texas and she was out there and she says, Oh boy, look at all these tactics. I don't know what I could do. And I said, oh, boy, here, you need to read this book. But you know what? What do you do best? She said, I'd like to talk. Okay, well, let's talk. You know, think about some of the ways that you like to engage people. Well, the next day, that morning, we have a church service at the church in the next town. And she came up to me and she said, I have an idea. What do you think of it? She told me this idea. It was she put a chair out there. And there was a telephone pole, and she says, I want to talk to people using this chair, uh, being able to sit in it and be able to put everything you have in it. But what could you maybe not use a chair and still sit down? So people would put their backs to this telephone pole, and they would be in a squatting position. They would see how difficult it was. And if they could make three minutes, she bought candy bars to give them. Well, I'm going to tell you something. For the next four nights— she was as busy as could be, very popular with the teenage crowd, and she got into some great evangelistic mess uh, conversations with these uh, these uh, people. And th- three minutes is a long time. And so while they're while they're up, you know, trying to get their candy, she's telling them the gospel in a three minute way. 
And uh, I talked to her at the end of the four days and I said, so how did it go? She said, I would have never thought that I would be able to have dozens and dozens of conversations with people on Mormonism. It's her first time ever. She just became a Christian a couple of years ago. And she says, I'm so excited. I'm thinking of new possibilities when I go home. And she says, I'm coming back next year and I'll be doing this all over again. I am so excited. That was exciting for me because uh, she, she, she said that idea of the ping pong um, a guy that came was helpful to her. She got the book. She was looking through some of it, but none of those tactics she felt like was what she wanted to do. So she came up with her own idea in a public setting, and I think she was successful with it. And so it blessed her. I'm sure there were people who got the gospel who would not have gotten the gospel had she decided to stand around and watch while others were doing their thing. Yeah, I'm just saying, I'm thinking, see, my wife wants to do evangelism more often. I could picture her out there using her love of anime and artwork to communicate with people. Or even, Absolutely. Or, like I said, we're both gamers. Set up a game area for us. Just play games with people and talk with them at the same time. Because if you get caught up in a game, you do not want to leave it, Harry. You're right. I mean, you mentioned your wife's art. Let me just tell you, uh, there's a lady who hasn't been out there for a few years, but she was out this year again for the second week. There's two weeks of this pageant, eight total nights. And so what she does, she has a chair, she has an art easel, and she she's a great artist. And so she draws a uh, painting of the temple. And so guess who comes around to look at it? And it's very well done. So who's coming to see Mormons. It's Latter-day Saints, mm-hmm. and they're going, oh, that's very beautiful. They don't know who she is. Wow. Well, you're a great artist. That's a be- that's beautiful. In fact, I think she has actually given copies away. That she, I don't think she gets many done because I'm going to tell you, her little uh, place where she's at usually has several people standing around, and she very good with the LDS women. I'm not very good with the women. I don't have very good conversations typically. Mm. Uh, in fact, we do have a chapter in our book written by Becky Walker on how do you talk to LDS women, which are different. They're they're different than the men. Of course, we have differences. Yeah. But she, this one woman, is so good, and she's probably 60 years old or so, but the older ladies will come who appreciate her art. She'll have an hour-long conversation with them, attracted by this painting. A couple of years ago, my friend Chip Thompson, who wrote the chapter on using the surveys in our book, Sharing the Good News with Mormons, he uh, there's a food court, and he decided he would rent a booth. And so he did two years ago. And he has archaeological uh, things, uh, pots and spears and other things from the Holy Land. He goes every year to the Holy Land, and he has, in fact, they have a Bible museum at the uh, Solid Rock Cafe, a Christian coffee house that's right across the street from the college there in Ephraim, the next town over. And so he he uh, rent, he rents the booth, he puts in a display, and nonstop for three or four hours, he's talking to people about, look at the evidence here for the Bible. And people are fascinated. The Mormons believe in the Bible. So they go, wow, that's cool. Yeah, look, this comes from Shiloh. This comes from Shechem. And so he has all this different pottery and he has uh, a different tactic every well, the two years that he's done it, and he takes that, he turns it into a conversation about the gospel. 
-hmm. He attracts them with something that everybody can appreciate. Well, look at pots right from Israel at 2,000, 3,000 years old. And then he's able to use that. Man, you can, whatever your passion is, I believe, not just in an LDS setting, I believe it could be for any kind of evangelism. You just have to think outside the box. Evangelism is not just street preaching. It's not just passing out tracts. There are so many other ways to do it. Mm-hmm. Let's talk a little bit about that method that you use, the miracle of forgiveness. Now, Grant, I haven't read that book yet, but it's my understanding. Honestly, what I've said about that book is, if it's true, I think it's very aptly titled because it'd be a miracle if anyone ever got forgiven. Yeah, that's exactly right. <laughs> Yeah, the, the Miracle of Forgiveness is a book that was written in 1969 by the 12th president of the church, Spencer W. Kimball. He wrote it when he was an apostle, and a lot of Mormons like to remind me, well, he was just an apostle, and then I'll remind them that, well, wasn't that what Paul was when he wrote all of his epistles? Mm-hmm. I mean, think about it. Apostle is a pretty big position if you're going to call a man an apostle, but he later became the president of the church, which is the top man. He's the prophet. And, uh, and so he wrote this book. Uh, it's no longer in print since 2015, but on a lark in 2014, I went out to a temple open house event, which the Mormon church will put on just before a temple is dedicated. Uh, they'll invite the public. In fact, in Atlanta, they had that, I think it was back in the 1980s, where you could have gone into the temple because you cannot go in the temple after it closes. Only those who are worthy. The temple recommend card must be had to be able to show the person at the front desk. And so uh, people come to these events. And so we were out at the Ogden Temple Open House event on the public street, and we normally would pass out a newspaper. We have a newspaper that is directed toward people who are going to the temple open house so they can understand a little more about what the temple was or is in Mormonism and what Mm -hmm. it's all about. But on a lark, I had four or five extra copies of The Miracle of Forgiveness, and I told my friend Randy Sweet, who co-authored the chapter with me, I'm going to try to give these away. So I stood out there, and for an hour, I'm saying, here's The Miracle of Forgiveness, a book written by the 12th president of the church. Every Latter-day Saint ought to read this book. And uh, people were passing by, and they were scratching their heads. And I'd have people come back and say, are you Mormon? No, I'm not a Mormon, but I think this is an important book because I think he accurately portrays what a Mormon needs to do in order to be able to get forgiveness of sins. He accurately portrays the doctrine and covenants in the Book of Mormon, two unique scriptures in Mormonism. Well, in an hour of doing this, I had five books. I had not given away one yet because I have found that most Mormons who are over 40 already own the book. But uh, but I was able to get into four, five, six good discussions, five, ten minutes, which for me is a good discussion. I'm able to talk to somebody, and sometimes they last longer. But at the end of the first hour, I looked at Randy, and he looked at me, and I said, I think we have a new tactic. And so we went to thrift stores here called Deseret Industry Thrift Stores, owned by the LDS Church. And we started to buy the copies. And it seems like every time we go to a Deseret Industry thrift store, there's at least two, three, or four copies. And there are probably 15 of those in the valley where I live or throughout Utah. And so we make our rounds, and I highlight in these books the unique passages, because what Spencer Kimball says is possible to do 
it's possible to keep the commandments that God has given us, and he uses Scripture to support that, First Nephi 3.7. He talks about what you need to do in order to get salvation. He lists on page 25 all of the sins you cannot commit. These are things that are important. Uh, I mean, Mormonism has regular Christian ideas of what you're supposed to do, and they have additional ideas, such as on Sundays, they're not allowed to do anything except study the scriptures and be quiet. They're not allowed to watch football games. They're not allowed to have recreation. They're not supposed to go shopping. Uh, they, they, they have, uh, they're not, they have the word of wisdom. They're not allowed to drink hot drinks, no coffee or tea. There's a whole host of different things that Mormons are supposed to do. And he lists them all on page 25. And then there are so many different places I like to highlight in each book. And I do that while I watch football or basketball on TV, I'll just be highlighting these books. And let me just read to you a couple of the passages just to give you an idea of what his view is on what a person has to do. Page 206, he writes, one of the most fallacious doctrines originated by Satan and propounded by man is that man is saved alone by the grace of God, that belief in Jesus Christ alone is all that is needed for salvation, along with all the other works necessary for man's exaltation in the kingdom of God. And when he says exaltation in the kingdom of God, he's talking about eternal life, eternity as a God in the celestial kingdom. That's what he means. Mm -hmm. This could rule out the need for repentance. It could give license to sin, and since it does not require man to work out his salvation, could accept instead lip service, deathbed repentance, and shallow, meaningless confession of sin. So Mm -hmm. according to Mormonism, what he's saying here is, by the idea that you're saved by grace and not by works, it might mean that you wouldn't want to work. And that's true. That's what James was talking about. Christians who said, I'm all taken care of. I don't need to do anything but just sit back and receive the grace. And James says, no, show me your faith by what you do. And then listen to what he says on pages 208 and 209. He says, the gospel is a program of action, of doing things. Eternal life hangs in the balance awaiting the works of men. This progress toward eternal life is a matter of achieving perfection. Living all the commandments guarantees total forgiveness of sins and assures one of exaltation through that perfection, which comes by complying with the formula the Lord gave us. In his Sermon on the Mount, he made the command to all men, Be ye therefore perfect, even as your Father which is in heaven is perfect. Matthew 5.48 Being perfect means to triumph over sin. This is a mandate from the Lord. He is just and wise and kind. He would never require anything from his children, which was not for their benefit and which was not attainable. Perfection, therefore, is an achievable goal. A lot of Latter-day Saints, when they hear that, they go, yeah, you know, you're taking it out of context. Well, I always like to hand them the book and say, show me, and I've got a lot of other quotes that— and you can actually go to our website to read more about this, miracleofforgiveness.com, where I can't buy the book for you, but you can get these used for a few bucks on the Internet and get your own copy. And you, I show you on the Miracle of Forgiveness places you can highlight. Then you go tell your Mormon friend, hey, I bought this book called The Miracle of Forgiveness. And you don't have to give the book away. You just have your own copy. But they probably have the copy. And you say, you know, I've been reading it. Maybe you would like to read it because I have some questions that I just want to see if you would be able to answer. And using that website, I think you can come up with 
enough questions to ask and to look at some of the things that Spencer Kimball says, where you're either going to get him to say that Spencer Kimball was teaching false doctrine. And if a Mormon says that, I say, well, wasn't he the president of the church? Didn't, isn't this book under his portrait in the Church History Museum right across the street from Temple Square? And it is. Mm-hmm. Wasn't this book recommended three times at General Conference? And that's when the prophets and the, the prophet and the apostles get together to give teaching twice a year in Salt Lake City. I said, haven't they three times said that this is a book that every Latter-day Saint ought to read and study? And it's true. They have. And I, isn't this the book? that was cited 69 times in a manual, a church manual called Teachings of Presidents of the Church, Spencer W. Kimball, that was the church curriculum in 2007 for the Sunday school, and cited 69 times, including chapter 4, which is called The Miracle of Forgiveness, where a number of those quotes were found. Isn't this the same book? Well, yes, it is. But somehow it no longer is true. Well, that's a problem with me, because if Spencer Kimball was not teaching the truth, as some Mormons would like to say, then how do we know that Russell M. Nelson and the other leaders today are teaching truth? You can't do that. These were these men, I, you could do that with Joseph Smith then and say, well, I don't believe everything he had to say. I think we need to understand that the Mormon church says its four scriptures and the teachings of its leaders are scripture. They are to be believed. If what Spencer Kimball is saying here, you have to be able to triumph over sin, I'm not able to do that. And no more really, honestly, that I have met has said that they have accomplished what is being said here. And so, uh, in fact, he even goes on in pages at the very end of the book, he goes on and says, the desire for sin has to be taken out. He says, the former transgressor, must have reached a point of no return to sin, wherein there is not merely a renunciation, but also a deep abhorrence of the sin, where the sin becomes most distasteful to him, and where the desire or urge to sin is cleared out of his life. So Spencer Kimball, at the very end of the book, doesn't just say you need to keep the commandments continually, as the scriptures for Mormonism say, but you have to have all the desire of sin out of your life. Not even Paul was able to do that. Oh, wretched man that I am, he said. Mm-hmm. And uh, it said that he struggled with sin. And we do struggle with sin while we're in this body that certainly has been tainted by sin. And yet at the same time, it's not based on what we do that earns us accomplishment before God's sight, but it's what Jesus did on the cross that, again, imputed or gave us a righteousness, an accounting that we didn't deserve, and it wasn't our doing, it was his doing. That's why I like to use this book, because I'm not handing out quote-unquote anti-Mormon material. I'm not handing out tracts or newspapers. I'm trying to give away a book, and uh, it's hard to give away books, because uh, either they already have the book or they're not willing to read it. That's all I ask. Read this book and you have it. And, and it's yours. And mm-hmm. so uh, we go out to general conference. We usually hand out in about three hours. We can get a, give away 50 or the of those real easily, but it's the conversations we have in those three hours that make it all worthwhile. Yeah. I like to remind everyone of this point, but you're listening to the Deeper Waters podcast. I'm Nick Peters, your host, and everything we do here is supported by listeners like you. And I've said this before several times, we really could use your support. And some of you can sit back and think, well, there are other people that are giving not as much as 
would be helpful here for us. The more you give us, the more we can do. The more we can provide for you all. I mean, if you'd like to see the show go live stream more often and such, well, you got to be supporting. So, let's say you want support. Go to deeperwatersapologetics.com. There's a link on my side. Help support the work of Deeper Waters Christian Ministries. And there's an area in there. You click on that. You get taken to the ministry of Risen Jesus. It's a ministry of Mike Lacona. Did I goof up on my website and send you to the wrong place? No, you're at the exact right place to be. Mike and Debbie Lacona are my in-laws. So you send a, a, your donation to them. And then you get in touch with Mike or Debbie, or me, or my wife, Allie, and say, hey, I made a donation. I want to go to Nick Peters. I want to go to Deeper Waters. And we will make sure that we get that donation, and it will be tax deductible. You can also go and buy some ebooks that I have either written or co-written. Written is a, a creed for the ages, the Apostles' Creed and Today's Christian. Co-written is... Um, Books like Defining Inerrancy, God and Natural Disasters, Groundless, Christian Answers to This Generation's Questions. And this one doesn't support us directly. It supports the ministry that we're affiliated with there, but it will help us do more work. That's the work that I've done with the group Vimensionables. And we have written a book about a, a Vimensionables project with a 40 answers to questions from five different apologetics perspectives. I'm one of them. So you can go and you can buy that book. You know, you can also go and, uh, well, I'm not sure if you might have noticed this. And Eric, you're married here. Let me ask you this. Does your wife like jewelry? Yes. Yeah, you know, a lot of women do seem to like jewelry. Now, guys, we have a jewelry store outside of Fan Hours who runs a jewelry business, and she wants to help out the ministry. And what it is is you can go and you can make a purchase there, and you can buy some jewelry for that special lady in your life. And whatever you purchase, our friend will donate 25% of that purchase to Deeper Waters. <laughs> so, guys, you know, we've always told you. You can buy something special for that lady in your life to make up that screw-up that you recently did with her. Or you can buy something special for that lady in your life to make up that screw-up that I know you're going to make with her. Because it's going to happen one way or the other. And if you can't do any of these, please consider going on iTunes at least in leaving a positive review of the Deeper Waters podcast. I really like to see them and it spreads the word about the ministry. And that's something else we could definitely use. Uh, Eric, do you have a or ministry or organization you'd like to see people donate to? Yeah, we are a faith-based ministry. Uh, we only have a few churches that actually support us, so uh, we're basically supported by individuals. And uh, uh, you can go to mrm.org. It's maryrichardmary.org. That's our website. If you go on the computer, it's on the right side, a yellow button. You can click there. If you're on a phone, you can go to the very bottom, and there's a way to click there. And you can give through PayPal. You can use your credit card. But, uh, yeah, 100% of what you give goes to the furtherment of our ministry, what we do. And so anything that you would want to 
to uh, send to us, that would be great. Also, you can sign up for a free newsletter mm -hmm. by going to our website, and uh, it's a free every other month uh, publication. It can be either sent to you electronically, or if you would like, you can also ask for that to be sent in a hard copy. But uh, that is called Mormonism Researched, and so we want to keep people up to date. It's a little extra thing that we do besides our website, which has a number of videos and articles. So yeah, feel free to go there and, and use that donate button. And that website is mrm.org, right? Right, right. Now, since you mentioned having a newspaper and such, you've also got a technique in the book about using the newspaper. And this, this might be surprising to some people because so many times when we go to the grocery store, the local newspaper can be there. <laughs> And when to know if we'd like to buy a subscription, and I honestly have to say every time, like, I'm so busy reading books, I don't have time to read the newspaper. And I think many people today would say, yeah, we don't really read newspapers anymore. Who does? But this is a technique you've got, isn't it? It is. And uh, it, it's one that we've used for many years. We first started doing this in 1993 <laughs> when the San Diego Temple opened up, and that's where Bill and I lived. And... We ended up handing out over six weeks, and we covered it I, with people uh, handing out at both entrances, the front and the back, 12 hours a day. And I think we counted 100. We're sorry. This is Nick Peters, and I affirm the virgin birth, even amidst technical difficulties. And now back to our program. Now, since we talk about newspapers, something interesting, you've actually got a section in the book talking about using newspapers as evangelists. I mean, this could be surprising because I know when we go to the grocery store and we have someone trying to sell us a newspaper, mainly pointing out all the coupons and such, and I have to say, look, I, I honestly read so much, I don't have time to read the newspaper. I don't know people around here who get the newspaper delivered to them. I mean, doesn't this seem like this could be an outdated method then? And, and you're right. Um, the chapter is called Extra, Extra, Read All About It, The Newspaper Approach by Sharon Lindblom. Mm -hmm. And uh, we started doing this in 1993, where we handed out a total over six weeks of 180,000 newspapers that were actually eight pages back then and well-received. And uh, it worked great. You're, you're right. It's not as successful today as it was back then when more people read newspapers. However, if you are walking to a temple open house and you're walking by somebody who is handing out a paper with information, whether you're LDS or not, and we're, we're more actually doing that paper for the non-LDS because many Mormons are, being, are bringing their friends and family members who are not LDS to this temple. And so, uh, so I think they're very curious. And so we want to get that into their hands. Uh, and we have had, as Sharon talks about in the in the in the uh, chapter that she wrote a number of different people who even years later read what the paper was all about and ended up coming to faith in Jesus and so it has worked uh, we like to also use these in the neighborhoods surrounding the actual uh, temple and so we can't I mean, we can't just uh, hold out a website sign for instance like Rob Savolka does because they're not going to get it but but if we go around the neighborhood and we'll drop hundreds and hundreds of newspapers in those neighborhoods, we know that people are going to talk about it. So whether or not a newspaper per se, the hard copy is being read, they certainly can go and they can um, 
they can actually read it for the hard copy. They can also, if you wanted to see that newspaper, you can go to sacred or secret dot com. That's one word, sacred or secret dot com. And by the way, you notice we have a lot of websites. We have found that the website is the more modern approach. But how do you get that website address to them? Well, it's going to have to be inside of a newspaper. It's going to have to be on a website sign. It's going to have to be somehow that, that they're going to be able to ever go there in the first place. But sacredorsecret.com has a copy of the newspaper, the same version we've been using for the last six years. And I think we're going to – we're running out. We only have a stack left. So we're going to have to reprint that. And uh, we're, we don't have any more temple open houses in the United States happening this year, but next year there will be five of them. And so we're going to be out and about uh, going to different states and having that newspaper. I'll have copies of the Miracle of Forgiveness with me using that tactic. I'll have both. So it's kind of like having several different weapons to use. So even though it might not be as usable as it was 20 years ago, it, I think it's still very useful. And we like to have that information in one, in one uh, handout. Yeah. And uh, I know it's that Barrow sometimes said that temporal guards and such, temporal security would stop people, stop you all and say you can't ha deliver hand this out. And the thing is, that would be so counterproductive actually because as soon as the Mormons see, hey, you can't hand this out, everyone's going, hey, what's in it? What's in this thing? You know, as soon as it's forbidden, they want to know what it is. Yeah, we had that happen. We went to England, uh, the Preston England Temple Open House in 19, no, it was... Was it 1998? I think it was. Uh, and so uh, uh, we were trying to hand these out, and a lot of people weren't taking them. But those who were taking them, uh, at one time they said, uh, we're not going to allow these papers inside. They were forcing the people to throw the newspaper away, which was interesting. We had not really run into that kind of a tactic. Well, in Britain, they do like their freedom of the press. They And so it was interesting because – they would come back out afterwards and they would run up to us and say, we want another copy of the paper. And we said, well, what happened to your first copy? And they said, well, they took it from us. And now I want to see what you actually had to write, because if they didn't want me to read that, then I want to see what it is. So it actually backfired on them within a hour or two after that, they stopped that tactic and they weren't doing it anymore. But yeah, I mean, it's interesting. The first day that we ever go to a place like a temple open house, uh, we're on a public sidewalk. We oftentimes will have the security come out and thank us for being there. Oh, thank you for being here. It's wonderful. And here, would you like some water? And they're just very accommodating. And then the next day we're out there again. And all of a sudden, they become cold to us because they realize we're not just a flash in the pan. They tried to kill us with niceness. And now all of a sudden they're calling the cops on us, telling us that we can't be on a public sidewalk. They'll say, well, you're getting in the way of people. Well, no, we're not. We're, we always stand aside and it's a public sidewalk. Thank goodness in the United States, we still have first amendment rights. Mm -hmm. And, uh, and so, and you, we had talked about earlier, a lot of Mormons will say, well, you must be hateful for wanting to do this, why would you why would you waste your time? It's not a waste of time because if we really honestly believe that people are going to hell for eternity because they did not receive Jesus, then I want to do everything in my possible way to share the good news. They can reject the good news. I can't force them to be a believer. I have to do the best job I can in sales. And so I will spend my own money. I will spend lots of time going to these temple open houses 
so that I might be able to share with them and uh, and be able to lay out the differences between Mormonism and Christianity. Uh, and, and I, th I think uh, hopefully the Mormon will understand that if I really hated them, the most hateful thing I could do in my theology would be to just walk along and ignore the fire on the house. Mm. And, oh, you know, the house is on fire, but oh, well, I'm just going to keep on going. And I've actually had that experience, a next door house that burned down. What did we do? We made sure everybody was out of there. Hey, get out. And then once we were sure, we we tried to put out the fire, but the house burned down completely. But we're gonna we're gonna shout out if we have to do whatever we can within reason, of course. But uh, I think that's much more loving than just saying, "Well, I really don't care." So go to the worst place possible because I'm not willing to share truth with you. Mm -hmm. Now you mentioned about websites and such. I think that's an interesting approach we can talk about as where I know I'm the kind of person that if I'm out there in public, I mean, I don't really like to start conversations, but if I do, I don't mind saying something provocative, something very controversial, because I really don't care for a conversation where everyone's just agreeing with everything and nothing interesting is being said. I like to get some real conversation started. And this is a technique you got there where if someone holds up a website on a banner, kind of like reminiscent of, say, the uh, rain, a banner man who used to go to all those sporting events and hold up the sign, say, John 316. Right. And he holds a sign up that, you know, not too controversial. So all it just says on it is josephlied.com. There's yes. no, re no real reason Mormons would find that controversial now, is there? Yeah. <laughs> well, in, in fact... He's writing, and I haven't put it up on our website, uh, sharingwithmormons.com, but he's written a bonus chapter on what did Joseph Smith lie about. And he ha he is a liar. Uh, mm -hmm. And and, and uh, yeah, that's pretty blunt, obviously, mm -hmm. josephlied.com. But he holds that sign up, and guess what? People actually go visit it. Why do they go visit it? Because they're curious. If you say, I love mormons.com, they're probably not going to care. But something like that gets their attention and, uh, and and so he uses that as a, a technique. And so again, being innocent as uh, a dove and and true as a serpent, I think is is what Jesus is said to do. And if you go to his website, he'll talk about how Joseph Smith was married to thirty to forty women, which is admitted to by the Mormon Church now. Mm -hmm. uh, that uh, a third of those women were married to uh, living husbands. A third of them were teenagers. Uh, he lied to his wife, Emma. There's all kinds of historical evidence to show that he lied regularly to his wife. And a man who's willing to lie to his wife is going to obviously lie to others as well. Mm -hmm. So he talks about that aspect of Joseph Smith. He talks about the uh, the Book of Abraham, which is pr one of the biggest reasons why people end up leaving the Mormon Church. Joseph Smith claimed that he received papyri that was written from the hand of Abraham in 1835, a traveling salesman named Michael Chandler sold this papyri to him. It actually was just common funeral papyri, not even during the time of Abraham, but Joseph Smith said that he was able to translate that into the book of Abraham, which is now scripture found in the Pearl of Great Price. Uh, he lied. He, he wasn't telling the truth. It's been proven that that papyri had nothing to do with Abraham. And in fact, today, the Mormon church is now admitted in what's called the Gospel Topic Essays, one of the essays that he, they have on their website, they say, yes, 
the book of Abraham was not a traditional translation as a translation would be, but rather it was a spiritual translation. So he would take one character of the Egyptian hieroglyphics and he would write 300 words using his spiritual insight. That's not a translation. Mm -hmm. That's nothing close. And so why did you even need the papyri to be able to write down God could have just given that to you anyway without having to have that. Uh, also, Joseph Smith, you know, the gold plates. He claimed that he had gold plates. There's no proof that he ever had gold plates. He took a magic stone, he stuck it into a hat, and he would actually look inside that hat to give him the translation. The Mormon Church has now admitted to this uh, just a few years ago. Before then, they made it appear that Joseph Smith used his finger to run across the gold plates, which supposedly were taken back by the angel Moroni, so we don't have those plates anymore. But if he couldn't have translated the book of Abraham properly, then what gives us any idea that he could have translated the 530-plus pages of the Book of Mormon correctly when we don't even have that anymore to be able to test? So, so many problems. He gets them to come to his website. He's had people actually leave the Mormon church because they were ticked at him, and it might sound on the edge, certainly, but uh, it worked. And uh, our website that I like to use at Temple Open Houses, sacredorsecret.com, that gets their attention too, because Mormons like to say, no, it's, it's sacred. They don't like the word secret, but it is sacred, we would agree, but it's also secret. Mormons are sworn to secrecy about what goes on inside a Mormon temple. There are special handshakes they must learn. There are special new names they get. And they're not allowed to talk to anybody, even fellow members, about what goes on inside there. And when you talk about a translation of plates and such, I'm remembering something. You don't know if I'm getting the pronunciation wrong or something, but I think like the Kinderhook plates. Yes. Mm-hmm. Yeah, the Kinderhook plates were um, discovered, and I forget, was it Kentucky? I forget the state it was actually discovered. And, and, uh, and he claimed that... Uh, th- you know, that this, this was a special writing. Well, it turns out it was a fraud. And, uh, and so it kind of went away, but uh, it, was, it was actually put together by some opponents of Joseph Smith to, to see if he would actually do it. He, the, the claim is he never accepted it as being honest and truthful, but I mean, it was just a bunch of gibberish, you know, uh, looking like Egyptian hieroglyphics to see if he actually would fall for that. So people were trying to flush him out even back then, he had a lot of critics. Uh, you have to, you have to uh, see that he was basically run out of New York. He was run out of of Ohio. They had a place called Kirtland, and there was a scandal involving uh, currency that he had made. Uh, b- back in those days, you were allowed to do that, and the bank failed. So he left in the middle of the night on that one. And then in 1838, run out of Missouri. Actually, he was jailed for some of the things that took place. And then uh, he ends up going to Nauvoo and became enemies with the people that were there, many angry people. And that's why he was killed in 1844. June of 1844, he was uh, jailed because there was a printing press that had put together that had been used for a newspaper called the Nauvoo Expositor, which were written by disgruntled former Mormons who were upset with Joseph Smith's polygamy, among other things. They wrote this newspaper. Well, Joseph Smith, as the governor of Kirtland decided to have it, uh, or excuse me, the mayor of Kirtland, he had it destroyed, and uh, and that was a problem. And so the, the governor ended up arresting him, put him in a jail in the next town, 
and then it was overrun by uh, some of the non-Mormons who had blackened faces uh, to hide their identity, and he was killed in a gun battle. Actually, mm-hmm. Joseph Smith had several smuggled pistols, and he actually killed a couple of people in the gun battle, but he was killed along with his brother, Hiram, and, uh, and so a lot of people thought, well, that's the end of Joseph Smith, but it wasn't the end because uh, his religion continued in the form of Brigham Young, who ended up taking the Mormons a few years later out of oh, out of um, uh, out of Nauvoo, Illinois, and ended up taking them to what we now know as Utah, the Utah Territory. Mm-hmm. And in fact, we have a celebration in just a couple of weeks. It's a state holiday, big parade. I understand it's the second largest parade west of the Mississippi after the. Uh, after the Rose Parade, and uh, and so it's a big deal. Everybody has a day off. We shoot fireworks. It's um, it's uh, Joseph Smith's, or excuse me, it's Brigham Young's entrance into into um, uh, Utah, and it's called the Pioneer Day. So mm-hmm. it's a, it's a, in fact the the skeptics. We have a lot of atheists here, and and so it's called the Pioneer Day, but the skeptics celebrate it as Pie and Beer Day. So there you go. <laughs> Yeah, I don't care much for beer, but you know that that kind of day might be a, even better for me to get some papaya and such. <laughs> yes, yes. Um, I notice also that so many of the approaches, especially towards the end, do focus on salvation because this yes. really is a very big area for the Mormons, isn't it? It really is, and that's I think that's my goal. Whenever I'm in a discussion with somebody using any of the tactics that I've used, like handing out a newspaper, I do that, or holding up a website mm-hmm. sign. But my hope is somehow we can get to the issue of if I were to die right now, where would I end up? And you ask a Latter-day Saint that proverbial question, they'll say, I'm not sure, I hope, I think, I'm doing my best, I'm trying. Well, again, I go back to my book, The Miracle of Forgiveness, and Spencer Kimball said, trying is not sufficient, nor is repentance complete when one merely tries to abandon sin. To try is weak. To do the best you can is not strong. You must always do better than you can. And so the idea of that tactic, and hopefully most of these tactics, would be eventually to get to this. And so that last section, as you mentioned, uh, Joel Grote, who works with IRR, the same organization as Rob Bowman, wrote a chapter on what when being good is not good enough, the awareness of sin approach. Mm-hmm. And what he does in that chapter is just basically show how we have tens of thousands of sins, the sins of commission and omission. Mm-hmm. And you may not even realize all the sins you're committing, but he talks about that and just helps the Mormon understand because their goal is to be as righteous as possible mm-hmm. and not to think about sin. And he says it's impossible not to sin tens of thousands of times, even if you're only sinning five or ten times a day. It all adds up. And then mm-hmm. the next chapter, uh, Lauren Pankratz does a chapter called Can Something valuable really be free, the meaning of grace approach. And he has a pastoral heart, and he talks about this, because uh, he likes to go straight to this issue of uh, of salvation and, um, and what everybody's problem is, kind of borrowing from the previous chapter. And then he talks about grace according to Mormonism. You don't have to know much about Mormonism to understand this chapter, to be able to see, here's what they have taught about grace. And then then here's how you show the biblical version of grace. And so he has that tactic. And then my friend John Cower 
uh, he wrote a chapter, Are You Considered As Good As Jesus? The Imputation Approach. And he has a way, in fact, there's an illustration in this mm-hmm. chapter showing how uh, it's impossible to earn God's righteousness based on your own efforts. And and so again, we're trying to, every chapter we're trying to let the Latter-day Saint know this thing is impossible to do, the Mormon way of salvation. And that ends in chapter 24. Keith Walker wrote, I'm trying my best, the impossible gospel approach. And I, I love the six verses that he uses right from their own standard works and shows, just like I used with Spencer W. Kimball, that they are not able to do it. That's a quite a predicament. If you're not able to do it, then the result is what? Well, anything less than the celestial kingdom is like hell in Mormonism. Even though it's a nice state, your goal in Mormonism is to become as God. Mormonism, there's a little couplet by uh, Lorenzo Snow, mm-hmm. and it goes like this. As man is, God once was. As God is man may be. So as man is now, as we are now, God once was on another planet nearest the star Kolob, and that's God was once a sinner, apparently, because he had to die on a previous planet. He was human. He died. He became the God of this world. And so the hope of Mormonism in this second estate called mortality, this earthly life, is to do everything possible to get to the top level of the three levels, three kingdoms of glory, and that's called the celestial glory. And by keeping the commandments continually, this is what DNC 25, 15, and 16 says, by doing that, then you'll qualify that you'll be able to become, as a man, the God, and the wife will become the goddess. Polygamy will be reinstated. Uh, even though they don't believe in polygamy for this life, they still believe in polygamy for the next life. Uh, that there will be multiple wives who will be needed to be able to populate this new world that they that a couple will be given, and then they'll start the whole process all over again. So what Keith Walker says, this gospel to get to that is not possible to keep. And so how how do you plan to do there if you're not doing everything that you're supposed to do? I think there's no better tactic than to deal with this issue of the impossibility of Mormonism's view of salvation, because when the Mormon understands there's no hope, they either are going to go to atheism, which there's even less hope there, or they might be open to the gospel. And I'm going to tell you right now, people do come to the gospel. I was I, I volunteer at Sandra Tanner's bookstore called the Utah Lighthouse Bookstore. It's right across the street mm-hmm from uh, Temple Square, or from, uh, excuse me, the baseball park uh, in, in Salt Lake City, not far from Temple Square. And so her bookstore is right across the street. She's been there for several decades. And uh, and so people come in, they know they can come in to talk to Sandra, and there's a listening ear. And we talk to people on a regular basis. Well, I'm there on Saturdays occasionally, not today because I'm doing this show. Mm-hmm. And I can't tell you how people come in and they are distraught. They are finding out that the history of Mormonism does not it does not uh, do what it's supposed to, be truthful. And what do I do now? I had a couple there a couple of years ago. Maybe it was three years ago. 80-year-old couple. Uh, this couple came and they said, we've been Mormon all our life. Now what do we do? Because I don't believe it anymore because of these gospel topics, essays that were coming out. 
I had a chance to explain the Christian gospel. They are now believers. In fact, they go to my Bible study that I have in my home. They're now 83 years old. They're in great shape. He's, he, he, um, he was an engineer, but he also did a lot of farming. And this couple is very sharp, and they are just loving the Bible. They are loving Jesus. And it's so exciting for me to be a part of their lives and to see, even at the age of 80, which is not very common. Usually mm-hmm. when you leave, you're going to be on the younger end. You're going to be in your 20s or 30s, but not 80. And yet they ended up leaving Mormonism very, very hard. Their whole family, all their kids, their grandkids are all LDS. Very difficult, but it's possible. And it might take history of the church. It might take uh, it might take the Bible. We, we suggest read, reading the Bible as a little child and see if what the Bible teaches is what Mormonism teaches. And a lot of Mormons have taken us up on that. And then they realize it does not, it does not compute. The two don't go together. I think but salvation, understanding that it's possible to know that you have eternal life. And it's exciting for me when I see somebody who was once lost but now are saved they are the best kinds of Christians out there. They really have an appreciation for grace that maybe some of us who grew up in the church don't have. Mm-hmm. You know, I, I think it's pretty interesting. I mean, we're getting near the end. We've got kind of like, like a question or two more, but Ray was just talking about, you know, polygamy going on eternally, about the impossible gospel and everything else. And I'm thinking, we started this interview kind of the whole idea of, well, aren't they Christians just like us? And I'm really hoping anybody who's been listening to this, who might have thought that, now at this point they're saying, I I definitely know that that is not what I have ever believed as a Christian. I don't know any denomination that believes that as a Christian. Right. I mean, uh, certainly within the Christian church, we do have differences on peripheral issues. Yeah. We're, we're possibly going to disagree on how often we should take communion and, you know, our eschatology, our view of end times. Or uh, Certainly we have differences, but when it comes to, and I don't know much about your theology, but when it comes to who is God, who is Jesus, what is the atonement, what is grace, uh, what is our authority, uh, you know, those kinds of issues I think you and I could just talk all day long and pretty much agree on everything, even mm-hmm. though we might disagree on other things. And I, you know, no two Mormons that I meet agree on all things. They might say they agree, but then I'll bring up uh, some kind of an issue and you'll get them disagreeing on what probably are peripheral issues, but even perhaps with the essential issues. So the, the idea that we can agree to disagree on some of those minor issues even Peter and Paul had disagreements. Not well, they had a major disagreement, but I think I'm sure they didn't agree on every single topic. But uh, you know, before the problem is here's the here's the issue: if you are going to be so precise with every single little aspect of peripheral theology, you'll soon be the only Christian you know. Mm-hmm. And so and so, but Mormonism is not peripheral issues. Who is God? Who is Jesus? How a person receives mm-hmm. salvation are contrary to what the Bible teaches. And if that's the case, then it's a philosophy that needs to be rejected. And I want to remind the listener what we've talked about before. We love Mormons. Otherwise, we wouldn't do this. We care about them very much. But just because we disagree doesn't mean that we hate them. 
No, Mm -hmm. we love them so much. If they have a piece of green spinach in their teeth, and to think, well, I don't want to rock the boat. I don't want them to 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 uh, to feel bad about themselves. So I won't tell them about that spinach between their teeth or the fly that's open. You know, I mean, wouldn't you rather have somebody give you some bad news mm-hmm. so that you can fix and make it into good news? And so I have green things between my teeth. I will go to the mirror. Oh yeah, I do. I can't believe nobody else told me about that. I'm so glad you took the the you took a chance that I might not be receptive and. I'm able to take care of this. Well, that's what we're doing with the gospel. We're saying there is bad news. You're a sinner, and Mormonism is not able to save you. But there is good news. Jesus has a plan. All you have to do is receive him, and he will come into your life. It's a gift you don't earn. It's just one you receive. Mm-hmm. And, you know, briefly, I think about how there's Mormons don't even agree amongst themselves. I think some a lot of people don't know what sparrows actually like. Several, several sects of Mormonism, actually. Well, the, uh, the main one is certainly the one in Salt Lake City, but you do have the Independence Missouri Church is probably the second biggest. They probably have a couple hundred thousand uh, members, whereas the Mormon Church has 16 million on the books. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and so that church is called the Community of Christ, it used to be called the RLDS, the Reorganized Latter-day Saints. You certainly have a number, especially here in Utah, of smaller churches that are polygamous churches. They don't accept Mormonism. Mormonism does not accept any kind of polygamy for this life. And yet there we have a guy named Warren Jeffs. You may have heard of Warren yeah. Jeffs. Uh, he's in prison right now in Texas for the rest of his life. But the residuals of what Warren Jeffs did in Hillsdale and Colorado City on the border of Arizona and Utah— tragic, many, many lives affected from the selfishness of a man named uh, Jeffs and his dad. And and it goes back all the way uh, to the turn of the century uh, where uh, people have had their lives destroyed because, uh, well, I mean, Jeffs had 78 wives. Warren Jeffs had 70 wives as young as 12 years of age. And that's what got him in trouble. He was taping his sexual encounters with his 12-year-old wives and and, uh, and and so that was used in the evidence against him. It uh, you know in, in the trial that he ended up going to prison for life. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and so yeah, you have a number of groups, but the Mormons don't consider them to be Mormon. In fact, they call them cults, which is interesting. They don't like to be called a cult, but they'll call anybody involved in polygamy a cult. And, and I think some we could say briefly too is that we can expect more encounters like this are going to be happening because. The internet is bringing out so much of a Mormon church that's trying to keep silence. So this is all the more reason we need something like this going on today. Yes, and you know, I, I mean, uh, when it comes to sharing, though, uh, in, in this topic that we're talking about, most of us are never going to have a chance to talk to uh, people that are in the fringe groups that we're talking about here. Uh, 16 million, and they're, like I said, they're in Atlanta where you're at. They're all over the United States, not, maybe not as populated as they are here in the West, but but uh, we need to have an understanding because this is a people group that is very receptive to having a discussion, and if we can share the good news with people who are Latter-day Saints, I think we are uh, doing what God has intended us to do. We have the book is Sharing the Good News of Mormons. Checking on Amazon. At the time of recording, the paperback is fifteen ninety nine. The Kindle is fifteen nineteen. Don't know if that's going to 
drop sometime because usually Kindle is cheaper, but if I really recommend you get it. Eric, it's very, very uh, blog and email website, a way people can get in touch with you if they want to find out more. Yeah, then go to MRM.org. That's our website. You can go, you can write uh, us uh, contact at MRM.org, and Bill will get that, and we can uh, answer your questions or any comments you might have. We'd be happy to help in any way we can. And do you have any final words you'd like to leave today for the Deeper Waters audience? Well, I thank you for having me on here, and I would just encourage people, even if you live uh, west or east of the Mississippi and maybe not as many LDS, you're going to run into a Mormon on a plane, uh, at your job, your neighbor, and have something with substance to be able to share with them. And so I would encourage you to maybe do a little more research on what the religion is. And then for this book, Sharing the Good News with Mormons, that, as you mentioned, is available on online retailers to be able to come up with a way that you can go about sharing your faith in a productive manner. Well, Eric, I'd like to thank you for taking your time to come on here, and I do hope we'll see you back here again sometime. Thanks so much. I appreciate you having me. And I'd like to remind everyone that next week we're going to have Abdu Murray on talking about his book, Saving Truth. For now, I am Nick Peters, and I am signing off.